millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Please enjoy this revisit of a popular earlier episode. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hi, and welcome to the latest issue of Peter Hart's Military History Podcast. I've got it right. Hooray for me. And it's, uh, as ever, I'm with my uh, my pal, uh, Gary Bain, who is here to keep me on the straight and narrow, he tells me. Well, that's going to take some doing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try our best. Try our best. Uh, once again, we're at uh, Bain Towers, which is a lovely little uh, uh, spot um, where, where, where you've made a life, haven't you, Gary? Yeah, it, it might not be to everybody's choice living in White Hart Lane <laughs> under the shadow of the Spurs ground, but... It's my choice. Yeah, well, it's your choice to live here, is it? I thought it was Janet. Anyway, uh, today we've got uh, uh, some of these podcasts. People say, oh, yeah, you keep saying you're keen on things. This one I'm really excited by because it's one of my all-time heroes. Um, and there are two First World War aces that float my boat. <laughs> uh, one's McCudden and the other one is our subject of today, Manic. Edward Manic, uh, VC. And so, can we start then? Who was Mick Manock? Mick Manock. <laughs> Mick, Paddy, variety of other nicknames. I hate, as you well know, and you've done that deliberately, I, I hate people who... Uh, it, everyone who called him Mick or Paddy or the rest of it is dead. They were his friends. <laughs> we're not his friends. So I prefer Edward, if you don't mind. Having said that, as you are well aware, <laughs> in about two minutes, I'm going to call him Mick Manic by mistake, because it's very easily done. Who was uh, Edward Manic Cross? That was nearly an early fall. <laughs> well, he was born the 24th of May, 1887, uh, from an unusual family. Uh, his, uh, his grandfather was quite well off and a newspaper editor, the rest of it. But his dad uh, was uh, also, in, unimaginatively, although, depends which way you look at it, all called Edward Manick, uh, uh, was uh, a soldier, a soldier, uh, a corporal. And uh, his mother was Irish, uh, Julia Manick. Uh, and uh, his dad uh, was, I don't know, not uh, an attractive character to, to many people. Certainly, he'd, uh, he'd uh, served bravely, uh, or well, presumably bravely in that sense, uh, fought in the Anglo-Egyptian War, served in India, where um, uh, Manic went with him, and then he fought in the Boer War. And after that, the family moved back to England and to Canterbury, 
very swish, very, very swish, uh, which, and Canterbury will claim Manic as their own. He's got a monument in the cathedral, which I've seen in their own. Monument? Oh, well, it's something in the cathedral. And um, um, here, his father deserted them, and uh, that's why Manic did not like him, and, uh, you know, uh, so. Um, and that's where he settled. He, he was... Uh, an interesting lad in the sense that isn't everybody interesting, you know. We, we he, he, but he was a pretty normal bloke, keen on sports, sh- shooting, air gun, like like uh, saints. They always try and make out some, you know, their their previous lives to sort of show what was going to come. So he was apparently a great shot on the air rifle, which sort of showed what would happen in the future. I'm not sure about all that. Um, and um, he um, he uh, you know played the violin. He was very musical, you know. I, Piano, violin, that kind of thing. Uh, I think that was his mother's influence. Well, it must have been because his dad had left. Um, school, I can't remember. I can't remember. I love historians who can't remember things. Well, I can't remember how he did at school. Uh, but he left and uh, worked for the National Telephone Company, first in the offices, and then he got bored, he wanted outdoor life, and went to work at the engineering department of the same firm in Wellingborough in 1911. This is all a bit reading from notes, but there you go. Uh, at that point, he joined as a territorial with the Royal Army Medical Corps, and he was indeed promoted to sergeant in 1913. Now, that shows, that's, you know, commitment to... Things are pretty good. Uh, another great commitment of his was one that's rather closer to my heart. And guess what that was, Gary, if you can? Uh, Liverpool? <laughs> no, no, no. The mighty Liverpool don't appear to have been close to... <laughs> well, that wasn't quite what I was expecting. Now, that's you. These, these things aren't scripted, you know, folks. <laughs> um, no, no. He was a left-wing socialist. And uh, he was the secretary of the Wellingborough uh, Independent Labour Party from 1912 onwards. And uh, although he's a very strong believer in empire, socialists weren't quite the same then as they are now. They believed in country and empire rather more than uh, our lot do at the moment. But he was um, he was very left wing uh, and uh, for for his time, noticeably so, uh, which is unusual. You know, uh, it's an unusual feature of a First World War flying ace, uh, if you see what I mean. He uh, sought adventure February 14, uh, pretty bad timing this, he sailed to, to, to Turkey, to Constantinople, Istanbul, uh, where he worked with the Ottoman Telephone Exchange, uh, a fine body of men I'm sure, uh, and on the outbreak of war who's probably in turn an enemy subject. Uh, here his health declined, he got dysentery, upset tummy of various sorts, he was ill, very ill, although I find this interesting because... He was repatriated because he was so ill, you know, uh, in, in April 1915. And in the next month... Immediately he volunteered for <laughs> One service. of those wondrous cures, you know, that you see people <laughs> taken into court with a Zimmer frame and everything. And then next minute, Zimmer, you know, after they've been, you know, they don't need it. Um, anyway, um, he, um, he, so he came back to England and recovered miraculously. Uh, went back to the, uh, the Field Ambulance Service, Royal Army Medical Corps, um, and he got transferred, hoping to be an officer cadet with the Royal Engineers, seeking to better himself. He was <laughs> upwardly mobile, in contrast to his father, perhaps. Um, didn't like it much, and he got a transfer to the Royal Flying Corps, RFC, um, where he was eventually commissioned as a second lieutenant. And in August 1916, he began to attend the number one school of military aeronautics in Reading. Now, this is where he learned how how to fly. Uh, 
And, and it's not just flying. It's you have to learn about aeroplane. How, how do aeroplanes work? It's the wingy things in an engine, I think. But, you know, they have to learn about engines. They have to learn about fl flying, uh, the theory of flight. And then they start to learn how to fly. They start flying those uh, Morris Shorthorns or Longhorns. I never remember. Don't ask me. <laughs> what is the difference between them? <laughs> well, it's the length of the sausage. That, that'll do for now, if you know what I mean. Um, and he, he, he starts to, you know, he, he's uh, basically learning to fly and... They and say presumably that, he's much older than, than his uh, contemporaries because he's born 1887. What he, a memory you have. <laughs> <laughs> he must be much older. He is. He's 28. And, you know, I mean, that's half your age now. And, and you know, um, but, but 28 is old. He's distinctly older than most of his contemporaries. Uh, the people who are going through flying training with him are normally 18, 19, 20. You know, that is the age of people. Some are even younger than that, although they've been very naughty boys. But the, the, he is older, distinctly older, and he's got more life experience and more... Well, I'm not sure Manic was ever mature, but he's more, more maturity. So, forgive me, how did he get accepted into the Royal Flying Corps? Because one of the things that he was described as, I think, is the ace with one eye. So, did he have a, a, a an eye problem? How did he get in? This is one of the great myths of Manic. Uh, um, I've not seen his medical reports. As I understand it, and one of the famous biographies is called The Ace with One Eye. I think that's by one of it. But as I understand it, and it wouldn't make such a good title for the publisher, it's The Ace with a Very Slight Astigmatism in One Eye. <laughs> and you can see that it doesn't quite fit on the page, you know, the, the title page. In, Ace with worry, worry, you know. So, um, um, there does seem to have been a problem with his eye, uh, possibly caused when he was in India. He had malaria and a variety of other things, you know. Uh, possibly he had a slight astigmatism in one eye, but he is not one-eyed. Uh, and the, the same people who call him that also refer to his amazing air vision. And if he didn't have a stereoscopic vision, i.e. both eyes working, you can't, I mean, you couldn't do what he could. You can't judge distance with one eye in the air. Uh, so, uh, so I, I, I think that's over exaggerated. Um, so, uh, so in the end, he goes out and he goes out to join uh, Forty Squadron. Forty Squadron, uh, uh, you know. Um, now, Forty Squadron, you know, uh, are a scout squadron. Scouts are what we would call now fighter squadron, and they are basically their job is to one uh, protect the the people who are doing the real work. Now, we did discuss this in a previous podcast when we talked about the, the birth of uh, military flying in 1914. These people, so the two roles, the, the roles of the Air, Air, Air Force are aerial reconnaissance and photography, most of all aerial photography, which allows a, them people to determine, that phone's still not, <laughs> to determine the shape of uh, what's going on on the ground, to, to, to identify targets, and artillery, artillery observation now that's the real work the, the scouts were there to protect them from german scouts and to shoot down those german scouts that's that's the role of the scouts it is a secondary role the real most important role is carried out by the what we call the core aircraft the the, the ones doing the basic functions but the the scouts were there to protect them and to shoot down the german scouts and of course the german uh, reconnaissance and uh, artillery observation things. So it's a secondary role, but it's still really important. 
and it really risky. And what were they flying? What were they flying? Well, they were flying a nice little single-seater uh, fighter called the Newport Scout. Um, and they were based at first. He, jo- he joins them on 6th of April 1917 at Air, uh, the airfield at the airfield. <laughs> huh, well, that's a bit of a tongue twister. The airfield at Air, Air, Airfield. Yes. <laughs> Mastered that. Um, now, um, this is a, a strange time for the uh, for the Royal Flight. Well, what, can, you, can you remember your? Uh, there are, I know you read all my books. I expect you remember well, my book, Bloody April. So I'm thinking Bloody April. So Aris uh, was uh, presumably kicking off, if you'll pardon the expression. Uh, there must have been a role for the Scout aircraft, if nothing else. Yeah, shooting. They, they had all those functions to do. Because our core aircraft, the ones doing the real work, were being shot down hand over fist by by. Uh, Manfred von Richthofen and uh, and his Jaster 11 uh, and the other German pilots. Uh, it was a cruel time and it was called Bloody April because they, they had, hun- I mean, literally hundreds, uh, two or three, uh, three, three, I think it's 350 deaths, which is nothing, by the way, compared to what's going on on the ground. So on the ground, if something goes wrong, you can lose a thousand men in one brigade, uh, you know. But here, what's happening is they're performing a function for the men on the ground. And I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I may well be wrong, but I think that there was a a, a, a real uh, tactical need to destroy the German kite balloons as well. Yeah, the, the, yes, that, 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 the, yes, it's the, they have to shoot because they're in the air all the time and they can look and see what we're doing. So that is crucially important and that will be one of Manic's. Uh, early jobs doing that um and and we will come on again to that it it but fundamentally shooting down kite blends is a new role and dangerous come to that but it also it's just this business of escorting our core aircraft and shooting down german aircraft now when he got there if he was older as you as you spotted he's older he's imaginative that's a, a problem in soldiers, and you know, and he's um, highly intelligent. <laughs> it's also a problem. <laughs> That's unfair. That's a, going for a cheap joke there. And he found it difficult to ignore the risks. Now, the thing about when you go out, you've got this new single-seater airplane. They're highly manoeuvrable, and you you got you take off. You've had some training. You know, you've learned how to fly, and you've had some tactical training you know some practice with a, a sort of air fighting school but not much and when you get up there you have to you've got all these interrelated things connected and if you think about it Gary uh, you've got you've got you've got to be able to fly the airplane and make it do what you want immediately accurately you know in in the round in a 360 degree surrounding thing and at the time presumably he would be considered a novice he was a novice precisely so Although he could fly, you know, how, you know, if you're going to have to br- turn left sharply, can you do it immediately without thinking? Can you can you dive? Can you can you can you do all these things? And while you're doing it, can you at the same time work out your approach? What they call a classic fight a scout approach, you know, to an enemy so that they can't get you. Uh, learn to approach from beneath, uh, uh, behind the tail with a two-seater aircraft to, so that the the rear gunner doesn't get you. Keep out of the way of the pointy bit at the front or the pilot will get you. Uh, you've got to think about, if you're in a, uh, a flight, you've got to think of formation flying. You know, you fly close together so you magnify your offensive potential. But, hang on a minute, <laughs> what happens if those wingy things touch each other? Well, 
they come off. And then you're in trouble at 10,000 feet. So, and then, even when you get the German in your sights, you've got to be able to hit them. You've got to be able to shoot accurately. There's lots of different disciplines, none of which come naturally to hardly anybody. You know, this is not something you can, you know, you, you, you can just, oh, I think I'll be a first world war flying ace today. You know, you can't. Uh, and that's why a lot of the people killed are beginners. And also, I think, you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think perhaps later Manet becomes obsessed with practising things. And indeed, he crashes, I think, whilst practising diving uh, aircraft. But there were potentially people were dying, not through the combat, but through not being able to control the aircraft. Yeah, um, I've I've got a quote here. Uh, He's diving to practise his gunnery. Yeah. And, uh, you know, shooting at a target on the ground, just practising and then... Coming out, you know, and he says, in one dive from 2,000 feet, my right bottom plane broke and fell clean away. Uh, managed to right the machine after desperate efforts with a joystick and landed slowly and, and safely about half a mile from the aerodrome. Such a thing has never happened before where the pilot has not been killed or injured by the fall. And he goes on. It didn't do his nerves any good. I'm going to come back to this repeatedly. Uh, now I can understand what a tremendous strength the nervous system, active service, flying is. However cool a man may be, there must always be more or less of a tension on the nerves under such trying conditions. When it is considered that 7 out of 10 forced landings are practically write-offs and 50% are cases where the pilot is injured, one can understand the strain of the whole business. And he, he finds it very difficult. Here's a, here's a quote from an early thing he did. He went out to escort a bombing raid. Now, bombing's not very important, but it's by this time, it, contrary to 1940, they are bombing, yeah, often airfields and things like that. And he goes out escorting a group of nine FE2Ds. They're uh, two-seaters pushers, so the pilot, the, the engine's behind them. And he says, I went over the lines for the first time. This is his first mission. Escorting FEs, formation of six machines altogether, heavily archied. My, my feeling's very funny. Archied means anti-aircraft fire. Uh, a group burst near me about 100 feet away. I did some stunts quite inadvertently. Lost my leader and deputy leader, but led the patrol down sh- south. Returned safely after a very exciting time. Saw a few hostile aircraft far away, but couldn't get near. And, you know, he's... he. He says uh, again, um, you know, he, they, he, he can't get, you know, you, it's, you're trying to break your duck. I mean, you remember that from your youth, you know, it's very important to break your duck in certain areas, you know. And uh, he's trying to, but he can't, because the Germans, we keep saying that they're, they're outnumbered, that we thought they outnumbered. They didn't. They were massively outnumbered. And they, they really went for our observation artillery observation and reconnaissance aircraft, they'd try and avoid our scouts because there weren't many of them, uh, German uh, fighters, scouts. So they were trying to avoid us <laughs> so we couldn't catch them. And, then, you know, another offensive patrol this morning with Brown le- uh, leading. Kept formation grandly, referring to, see, he's learning, he's keeping formation better. Brown tried to lose me but failed. Observed fires in lens, saw two formations of hostile aircraft very far away. They won't wait. <laughs> you know, it's very frustrating because the Germans are fighting a defensive battle. Now, um, um, you know, he, he's, 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 he's gradually learning, gradually learning. Uh, let's talk a bit about the mess. How did he fit into the mess? So, um, I mean, the, the thing about, about how he fits into the mess is he's a different class and type to the rest of them. But unlike McCudden, uh, James McCudden, who was also working class, the, the other 
most famous British ace in my view. Um, McCudden was a bit of a loner, he was quieter. I don't want to stereotype, he wasn't exactly quiet, but he, he was, you know, not as... And did they know each other, McCudden? Yes, yes, McCudden had helped train Manic, and they were friends, you know, and, um, and uh, so they were... But they're both working class, essentially working class, but Manic covered it because he was noisy, you know. Uh, in the mess, he was uh, lively, um, singing, dancing. This is a... This is a yeah, They'd celebrate anything in the mess. Uh, I don't want you to get... They weren't drinking all the time, but they did drink. And uh, they said promotions, departures, a, a successful mission, birthdays, almost anything could trigger it, you know. But presumably it let off steam because of the great strain. Yeah, yeah. And this is, uh, this is a quote from Manock. Uh, he goes, Another rag in the mess. Uh, box with de Berg. Crocked my knee and arm. Old Mc- M- McKechnie's uh, farewell night as he's proceeding home tomorrow morning. Great doings. And then this is the bit that I like. Reminds me of my own working life when I was young. Returned to bed at 2am and <laughs> to be called at 5.30. Went to St. Omar by sidecar at 6pm to fetch a new machine. Feeling like a wet rag. Mouth felt like the bottom of a parrot cage. <laughs> We're both laughing because who amongst us, and indeed Matt McLaughlin, our dear leader, I mean, who who of us hasn't woken up with a mouth feeling like a <laughs> the inside of a parrot cage? Now, um, uh, they'd often sing songs, and and we both love poetry, and uh, and uh, this is um, this, this, I, I've I've decided that you're not doing enough of these podcasts. So uh, what I want to do is uh, just give you the opportunity to show your poetry. And this is a parody, a parody of Jabberwocky that they used. That Manek particularly liked this. And it's in his papers at the RAF Museum. Uh, and I, I think it would be nice now for, for our listeners to hear you uh, li- with this. Go ahead, Gary. Let's see how you go. It's a parody. Thank you, Peter. Um, Twas brillig and the slithy quirk did drone and burble in the blue. All floppy were his wing controls and his observer too. Beware the wicked albatross, the O.C. quirks had told him flat. Beware the hun-hun bird and shun, the frumious halberstadt. But while through uffish bumps he ploughed, the albatross with towel on high came diving out the toll-gy cloud and let his bullets fly. One, two, one, two, and through and through. The Lewis gun went tick-attack. The hun was flawed, the quirk had scored, and came galumpling back. Oh, hast thou slain the albatross? Split one with me, my beamish boy. Our rafish scout has found them out. This CO wept for joy. That was particularly good. I am really impressed by that. Uh, the rafish scout is a particularly amusing pun because it, it's, it, it's, it's RAF-ish. And that means, it doesn't mean the RAF, of course, but what it really means is uh, the uh, the Royal Air Force uh, uh, factory, uh, the, 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 sorry, the, <laughs> the factory <laughs> where the, the scout, the SE-5s and such were built, uh, the, the, a lot of scout. Um, now, so Manic had a reputation. He was, uh, he was, he was quite loud, you know, um, uh, he was loud um, and, um, uh, but he had these deep-seated fears. And as he was flying, he, 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 he still had trouble. It, and he, he could not control himself at times. This, this, what, why do we like Manic so much? It's partly because he's very human. And, and 
I think he shows the fears that, that we, that normal people would have. This is uh, one quote says, Old Mackenzie goes away and leave today. 14 days. He's in need of it. If ever a lad was cracking up, Mac is. I wonder if I shall ever go like that. Uh, I get like that. And what my friends will think of me if I do. Old Paddy, the devil may care with nerves. I feel nervous about it already. And this is one of the things, being nervous about being nervous is a, a classic sort of, uh, rough manly thing you're more frightened of being frightened than than in the enemy often it seems um, and this stress showed and and this is from captain george lloyd of his own squadron and uh, and this is really serious this is unbelievable when you think this is about our greatest air race well people are saying mcgudden but it, you know it's an argument manic was not actually called yellow but many secret murmurings of an unsavory nature reached my ears I was told that he'd been in the squadron two months and he'd shot down one single hun out of control and that he showed signs of being over-careful during engagements. He was further accused of being continually in the air, practising aerial gunnery as a pretense of keenness. In other words, the innuendo was that he was suffering from cold feet. Now, this Lloyd, he was a flight commander, he confronts Manuk. And Manuk just says, yeah, I am scared, you know, but... He tried to explain that he saw air fighting. He didn't want to stop. He saw air fighting as a bit of a science. He saw it as something that, with his intelligence, he could master. This is so admirable that I can't believe... You know, it's like he's trying to use his brains to solve the problems that, that, he, that, that his fears are raising. He... he he wanted, he was going to study air warfare and he was going to practice every bit of the skills involved. Um, and gradually, gradually, he got better and better. And this is, you know, you, you have things like the... Uh, oh, back to balloon. Sorry. Uh, the, yeah. Um, one of his early things is this. And Manic left her an account. A new game. that What they decided to do is to get the balloons, you know, before an offensive, you've got to get them bloody things out of the sky. Uh, you, you've got to get the aerial... The, their, uh, observation aircraft out but these blasted balloons are up there all the time and it was dangerous it was dangerous the defences bloody hell they, they've got anti-aircraft guns they've got uh, machine guns and they've got these weird things that they call green onions <laughs> sort of thing my Polly would eat I, I've never been a believer in being northern you don't eat vegetables it's just not something you do but green onions were fired at them oh, that would frighten anyone I would have thought and and what they used to do is that they worked out a technique of flying ultra low level to approach them so that they didn't have any warning they couldn't get the balloons down so they'd also be pulling the balloons down if they saw a scout and Manic said a new game's been involved it involves the art of rushing all out and by all out it meant opening the engine throttle to its fullest power around houses chimneys barracks tents hills and valleys trees and telegraph poles at a height from the ground of anything less than 10 feet god almighty nothing more more exciting could be imagined and when one considers the speed of these machines just guess what it means and of course he's talking about 95 100 110 miles an hour and that doesn't sound much to the modern ear but jesus it was fast in those days you know and and it must have been terrifying and felt faster the closer you were to the ground of course yeah because it was you know yeah. it, it's just there isn't it now um third of may here's a real test uh he's escorting four sop with one and a half strutters they're one of those uh, aircraft that were just uh, the two seaters and they had been brilliant in the battle of the song well, hey you'd be going if you were in one but a year later you go ah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh they go where are they going where are they going above dwy uh where's that 
That's where Richthofen's Dester 11 is based. So this is really dangerous. And they're attacked by a group of German scouts. And Manick said, I tried my gun before going over the German lines, only to find it was jammed. So I went over with a revolver only, which means effectively nothing. Unarmed, yeah. I hung in a beautiful yellow and green bus. The, the Germans painted their aircraft lots of different colours, especially Richthofen's Flying Circus, but all of them did. I'm not saying this is from Richthofen's squadron. Um, attacked me from behind, Caddish German bounder. Of course he did. Um, I could hear his machine gun cracking away. I wheeled round on him and howled like a dervish, although of course he couldn't hear me for moral effect. Another one attacked a sop with and Keane blew the pilot's pieces and the Hun went spinning from 12,000 feet to the earth. There was I, a passenger, absolutely helpless, not having a gun, an easy prey to any of them, and they hadn't the grit to close. Hmm. I came back over Arras with three remaining sop with and excellent photos and two vacant chairs at the sop with squadron mess. What is the good of it all? That's what is the good of it all? You know, he's he's a thoughtful man. He's thinking, why are we doing this? Those people, those empty chairs, those deaths. But of course, we now we're not in it. We can say uh, it's the photos, Manic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why they're doing it. Um, so he's still having problems. He's being unlucky. His guns keep bloody jamming. You know, it's an endemic fault with machine you know uh, the guns do jam uh, his deflection shooting when it is working isn't very good deflection shooting is the art of shooting ahead yeah because of the speed yeah um Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is his eyesight a problem? I don't think so because of what we've said. But it's May 17, he just lacked the knack of shoot of, of, of um, shooting down an enemy. You know, it's like a centre forward who doesn't score goals. You know, 
And then suddenly they start scoring, you know, and, and he just didn't have that knack. Um, here's another account from the same time. My gun jammed again. Do you see what I mean? Uh, Keen was almost out of sight. My elder sight oiled up and the engine failed at the crucial moment. Everything's going perfectly, in other words. I thought all was up. We were 16,000 feet up at the time. I turned almost vertically on my tail, nosedived and spun towards our own lines, zigzagging for all I was worth with machine guns cracking away behind me like mad. The engine picked up when I was about 3,000 feet over Arras and the Huns, for some reason or other, had left me. Somebody else had probably attacked them. That's what was going on. I immediately ran into another Hun after I'd climbed up to 12,000 feet again, but hadn't the pluck to face him. Ooh. Uh, I turned away and landed here with my knees sh- shaking and my nerves all torn to bits. I feel a bit better now, but all my courage seems to have gone after that experience this morning. The CO was very good and didn't put me on any more line jobs for the rest of the day. You see what I mean? It's a real thing about sending him home. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he strikes me that he's um, potentially suffering PTSD at this stage. Already, perhaps, yeah. yeah. Because it happens much earlier than people think. Yeah, and, you I mean, know. people usually ascribe it to him in 1918. But actually, it sounds to me now as if he's got early um, uh, issues, shall we say. He's got issues. Now, by this time, though, funnily enough, after that, uh, you know, he seems to get a grip of it. And he does get the knack. Now, I'm not going to go into this period a lot. I'm going to more talk about what he does. He develops a, a whole system of aerial tactics based on very diligent preparation of his men, because he soon get, he gets, eventually gets promoted flight commander, because people are going home only. You become senior very quickly in the Royal Flying Corps in 1917. Um, prepare your men, prepare your machines, true your sights, make sure you, everything's working, check everything, check the belts to make sure everything's perfect. Um, use an aerial tactics based on, you know, caution. Now, that sounds careful stalking of the enemy, you know, uh, working as a flight, working as a team, so that not just you, you've got people who are flying the same way, the same sort of tactics. Can I exercise some dumb insolence here? Um, (laughs) You know, maybe it wasn't necessarily for the benefit of his men. Maybe that's how he actually dealt with the problems of his nerves. It was for his benefit, but coincidentally... You know, why wouldn't it be beneficial to your men to be better trained, better prepared and have better tactics? I think you're right. I mean, we can't ask him, but that sort of thing seems to come across in the diary. This sort of mixture of motives, are, are, I think that's sensible, very sensible. And he gradually, he gets better and better. He starts putting his theories into action. He starts to start shooting people down. And Captain Gwilym Lewis, who was in the squadron with him. Now, Gwilym Lewis was an amazing old boy who was interviewed by my, my friend Brad King. I, I missed him. I wish I'd done him now. But he was fabulous. And he said this, Manak was a hero of the squadron at that time. How quickly things change. He left the squadron with 21 victories. And his victories were good. He means he wasn't making them up, unlike some people. He came on to form having been older than most of us and a more mature man. He'd given great deep thought to the fighting and had reorientated his mental attitudes which were necessary for a top fighter pilot. He'd got his confidence and he'd thought out the way he was going to tackle things. He became a very good friend of mine and I owed a lot to him that he was so friendly. I was necessarily unnecessary, I was unnecessarily reserved and he liked to give people nicknames. He called me 
noisy. <laughs> he was a lot of fun. And this is the thing. People keep saying this about him. When he goes home, he's sent home in January 1918. His tour of duty lasts from April to January. And in that time, as I said, he's gone from being accused of cowardice to being the hero of the squadron. Uh, we can't spend any more time on this this thing because we've only got a certain amount of time. But if you want to read books on this, there's lots of books on Manning. His own diaries available and there are books by the great uh, the great uh, aviation historians. And I've, of course, I've mentioned here Trevor Henshaw's book, uh, 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 which I can't remember the title of just at the moment. So that's a rubbish advert. Yeah, he's going to really thank you for that. He really, he'll say, hey, <laughs> the sky there battlefield, volume two. I hate you, Gary. Anyway, um, so he goes home and he's on training schools. You know, uh, you know he's done a fantastic job. He's got 21 victories to his name. You know, he goes home. But he doesn't stay home long. In April 1918, he comes back into the fray as a flight commander, this time with 74 Squadron flying SE-5s, uh, Scout Experimental number 5, uh, Mark A. I, I absolutely love the RAF factory names. I think so much more romantic than Supermarine Spitfire. Scout Experimental Mark V Variant A. Come on, that's the stuff of legend. And it was a fast, single-seater scout. I think it's the greatest scout of the war. Um, It's it's greatest... It it was fast-ish. Fast as anything else. Uh, but the greatest thing was it was accurate. So, And it, best of all, in the dive, it was steady. It didn't judder. So it was great. You, it was made to dive down, shoot someone, and then regain altitude at the other side. And unlike the, the, the camel, which was a bit like your dad's old car, which, you know, when he was on the motorway in the 60s, he used to judder when he went above 70 miles an hour, <laughs> which is what sort of metaphorically the, the camel did. Uh, the, the, this was a beautiful, smooth thing. So it was made for accuracy. Now, um, he went back and he was driven, you know, he wanted to go back to the front. This is the weird thing about these aces. They're suffering from post-traumatic stress. I don't think it's a disorder. I think it's a natural thing. Uh, they're suffering from that, but they have a sense of duty. Uh, he's got a distinct nervous debilitation and he, he should have stayed home, really. You know, he should have stayed home, but he hadn't lost his touch. In fact, he goes on a, a killing spree. Uh, that sounds harsh, but that's what it is, really, isn't it? Um, it's Lieutenant Ira Jones, 74 Squadron. He wrote uh, the biography, Ace with One Eye, I think, later on. He said, he not only mystified and surprised the enemy, but also the formations he led. Once over the lines, he would com- commence flying in never-ending series of zigzags, never straight for more than a few seconds. Was it not by flying straight for long periods that formation leaders were caught napping? In other words, if you just went chug, 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 people could work out where you were going and ambush you sort of thing. Suddenly his machine would rock violently, a signal he was about to attack. But where were the enemy? His companions could not see them, though he's pointed in their direction. This is the bollocks about Ace with One Eye. This is the bloke who calls him the Ace with One Eye, and yet it's clear that he's got a wonderful eyesight. Another signal, and his SE-5 would dive to the attack. A quick half-roll, and there beneath them would be the enemy formation, flying serenely along, the enemy leader with his eyes no doubt glued to the west. The result was a complete surprise attack. One of his big principles was um, you, you come out of the direction you're not expecting, which is often from the east. In other words, you go around behind the German lines and come at them from behind, if you like. Uh, now, um, was he the only one using these tactics, or oh, were others? 
developing uh, that's that's a bro- that's the, the essence of the point you've got there that's your innate genius coming out there Gary I'll get my coat <laughs> <laughs> because no he wasn't the only one I mean Richtofen is doing exactly the same on the German side you know uh, a high altitude dive down surprise the enemy uh, the the cutting edge i.e. in Richtofen or Manek the, 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 the real ace takes the kill. The others don't aim at the same one, otherwise they'll fly into each other, if you think about it, and, and just take a kill. Um, and, and he had a fantastic motto, Manek did. Now, this is my favourite bit of this talk. Uh, so we've spent... Because uh, if you have a number of hobbies, uh, this advice is utterly, utterly invaluable to you. I think it's invaluable to all men, frankly. Well, yes, and you... This, I'm, I'm not going to say you put your finger on it, because uh, due to what I'm about to say. But if you are a First World War scout pilot, or a fell walker, or someone wishing to engage in sexual intercourse, <laughs> this advice is invaluable. And I will read it to you, Gary, because it's not complicated, is it? Gentlemen, always above, seldom on the same level, never underneath. <laughs> what wise words. <laughs> words to live by. Now, why, why is this important? Well, let, let's go. The sex thing, I think, will leave to your imagination, Gary. I can see you. Yeah, you are looking quite, quite flush. Um, but fell walking. Well, you walk along a ridgeline. You don't walk up and down the various hills because you'll knack yourself. First of all, aviation. Well, let's, let's, here's Lieutenant Arthur Cobby, 4 Squadron Australian Flying Corps. They couldn't shoot anyone down and they got Manic in. So Manic was sent to them just, just to go and talk to them. And he taught, he taught them this lesson and Cobby took it on board. They, and they started shooting people down after, after Manic's visit. But he said this, go into a fight from above if possible. To illustrate my meaning clearly, take two armed men, each armed with a stout stick. One man is in a steep ditch and the other on the bank above. The man in the ditch would be foolish to commence a fight with the other, whereas the man on the bank has the advantage of being able to commence a scrap if he so desires or run away. The man below could not catch him as he would lose time scrambling out of the ditch. This simple parallel governs the entire tactics of aerial fighting. So if you're above, you can decide whether there they are below. Oh, there's ten of them and there's only three of me. Bugger that for a game of soldiers, literally. You just fly away and wait to see if perhaps they might split up. And you can get three of them on their own, or two of them, or one. <laughs> you know, but not ten, nah, too many. Uh, but then, you know, if you're up there, you decide. You can dive down. They can't climb, because climbing is... It's not like now in a fighter, where you just go... Whoosh. Yeah, did they have the circle, I think, to, to get... A lot high. of them. Or they could go... And, yeah, I mean, it takes time to gain altitude. It's one. So height is crucial. And Manic has put his absolute finger on it. You know, and, and what a great motto it is. I just love it. I'll say it again. Gentlemen, always above, seldom on the same level, never underneath. And that, 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 you know, but he's not the only person pushing this. Other experienced aces, you find people like McCubbin would, would, would entirely understand and be telling people that, but they weren't great teachers. Manic had the ability to teach. He had a, a, an attractive personality, you know, that, that people were willing to take things from the other thing was his reputation because people like manic were like supermen if you think about them you know that they're, they're like the real great footballers i mean 
most of them play for Liverpool, obviously, but people like those great footballers, you don't have many playing for Arsenal these days, do you? If I could think of one of their names, I'd I'd say, but we won't embarrass you. But Salah, for instance, you know, he exudes power and you you think, wow. And and Mane, you know, these are names that are probably foreign to you. Foreign, actually, foreign to me in that sense. But the the these great aces like Richtoff and Manek, McCudden, they they seem on you know that you come or I come, we join the squadron. What happens to us? We die. But they seem to live on forever. You know, they're, they're like gods. You know, and so when they say something, people listen. So can I ask a question, if I may? <laughs> He seems to have been in competition. You know, he develops a competition in his own mind with his good friend. Presumably he's in competition with other races. But he's actually quite callous in how he goes about some of this. Do you think that, you know, perhaps his mental instability led him to be crueler than he needed to be? He he definitely becomes... I'm, I'm not... He was definitely... He hated Germans. And people speculate this might be because of his experience in Turkey, the, the enemy, you know. Uh, but I mean, a lot of it's speculation. But he is explicitly hates Germans, uh, possibly because they're the ones putting him through all this torture. Because you remember, he's, he's scared, and he, it's all going on at the same time. Um, he says this, uh, even though he's claiming victims, he says, uh, in the thick of it, things are a bit funny at the moment. I'm not at all content. Maybe it's okay. You know, within a line or two, he's con- this is in, from his diary. He's contradicting himself. Uh, much work, much fighting, and much wind up at times. But okay at present. How many contradictions is he going to get into a three, a two or three line sentence? You know, um, when Richtofen is shot down on twenty first of April, his reaction is, oh, it's very. Do you know what he says? He says, you know, somebody proposes a, a toast, a toast to our fo- our fallen enemy. Manet refuses to toast him and he says, I hope he roasted the whole way down. He means he hoped he burnt to death. Mm. He didn't. But, you know, now that's nasty. Is that, you know, there's no there's no uh, code of the air. There never was any Knights of the Air crap. That's just mythology. They always, right in 1914, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, uh, they're trying to kill you. And I think there's a certain irony there because I think later Manet himself uh, carries a pistol with him, service pistol with him, because he has this, he's totally convinced that he is going to die by burning to death. So uh, there is an irony there that he wished it on his enemy. It is, it, it is. And, and you know, he's getting more and more wound up. He's more and more incompetent. I mean, they call it score fixation or target fixation. And he starts fixating on his mate, McCutton, the one he used to go out chasing girls with. We've got letters in the War Museum. We're trying to arrange to go out and try and eat some floozies in London when they were both in London. And uh, he says this, if if I've any luck, I may beat old Mac. Then I should try and oost old Richtofen. You know, uh, that's before Richtofen died, but it gives you the the, the tin. And... um, and and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Then McCudden's killed in a stupid air crash. Not not stupid by McCudden, but stupid. It's just so. It's a waste. It's a waste. He just takes off. He does a little bit of a circle uh, and crashes. Uh, according to the great uh, aviation, I'm not an aviation historian, but Alex Revel is uh, the the real doyen of of, of and he says uh, it was a, a wrongly fixed car, Bretta. But 
Whatever the cause, McCudden is dead. Mannix distraught. Um, but now he's getting really... This flames business, going down in flames business, is getting out of hand. And this is Lieutenant Ira Jones. You listen to this, Gary, and see whether you think this person's in a good state. Whenever Mannix sends one down in flames, he comes dancing into the mess, whooping and hallooing. Flamerinos, boys, sizzle, sizzle, wonk. Then at great length, he tries to describe the feeling to the poor old Hun, going into the minutest details. Having fe- finished in a frenzy of fiendish glee, he'll turn to one of us and say, laughing, and that's what will happen to you on your next patrol, my lad. That's not healthy, is it? No, I think... In in the modern service, somebody would have probably recommended that he was sent home. He should have been. I mean, here's another quote from him. Then listen to this chaotic jumble. Of, I mean, things are getting a bit intense just lately, and I don't quite know how long my nerves will last out. I'm I'm rather old now, <laughs> as airmen go for air fighting. Still, one hopes for the best. These times are so. Horrible. Occasionally I feel that life is not worth hanging on to myself. But I hope springs eternal to the human breast. You know, he's all over the place. All over the place. And um, one of the most tragic things I ever remember reading was uh, his friend in the, in the Le- Wellingborough Labour Party. You know when he was in Wellingborough? Uh, is in Jim Isles. So he went home on a brief leave. And, and this is his account. And it's awful. It's awful. Mannock started to tremble violently. This gave way into a convulsive straining. He cried uncontrollably, muttering something I could not make out. His face, when he lifted it, was a terrible sight. Saliva and tears were running down his face. He couldn't stop it. His collar and shirt front were soaked through. He smiled weakly at me when he saw me watching and tried to make light of it. He would not talk about it at all. I mean, what do you think? I, I think he was very ill. Uh, and I think he should have been sent back to England. But he but wasn't. He wasn't, no. Instead, they send him to take command of 85 Squadron. And this is interesting, because this is one of the great class issues. 85 Squadron had been commanded by William Bishop, the great Canadian ace. Uh, whatever your opinions are of him, he was uh, definitely Canadian. Um, uh, and uh, he had taught them to drink, but very little else. Uh, you know, and they were not... In, under good, most of the stories about drinking in the by then it was the RAF come from that squadron, um, and uh, they they wanted uh, the, the the authorities want to send McCudden there, but you know this this is before McCudden was dead, uh, but they didn't want him because he was a working class oik. So what did they make of Manet? You know, well, they of a corporal. They didn't know because McCudden by this time had got. This is all before he died. Uh, sorry, I, it's, we're all slightly out of jumbly time, but it's difficult to you know, conceptually. Yeah. Um, but uh, McCudden was clearly and well known by this time. They knew he joined as a private. They knew he was working class background. They didn't really know about Manic. And Manic is also much more clubbable. And I don't mean like you think I'm clubbable. You want to hit me with a big club. I mean, <laughs> he was just hail fellow well met when he, you know. Um, and uh, when he when he joined 85 Squadron, he just worked and worked at building up their efficiency. He didn't have long, um, getting them to fly in tightly controlled formations, uh, leading the patrols, which Bishop, Bishop was a solo merchant. And was it at 85 Squadron that he started sharing kills with uh, some of the novice pilots? He'd done that a bit. His, his, yeah, yeah, he'd done that a bit before. And this was later on very controversial or... or it can be seen as controversial, but basically he would shoot if it's a two-seater, which you know he'd shoot out the rear gunner, kill the rear gunner, 
uh, and uh, and then uh, and then leave the, the for somebody else to to finish off. And I don't know what you think about it. People say that's nice of him. Oh, <laughs> not if you were German. Well, if you're in that front seat, you're your waiting mate, to die. Your mate, your best mate, has been splattered. You're, you're waiting to die. You're waiting to die, and you're sat on a petrol tank. Yeah, it must. I mean, I don't think it's particularly nice. I think I know why he did it. He did it to break. He knew about the difficulties of getting that first kill. So this is the breaking the duck thing again. Breaking the duck, and mm. he was willing to help. I, the other thing you were thinking of, I, I wouldn't advise sharing breaking your duck on that thing. But we'll <laughs> perhaps. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> um, so he he was uh, very you know he was building up, but he's starting to break his own rules. How many? I mean. This is the same with Richthofen. Richthofen was breaking about six rules of his own rules when he was shot down. And Manek starts being willing to fly low to attract attention. You know, believing he could get out of any situation by his ability to manoeuvre the aircraft. Yes, because wasn't he very specific in his instructions not to, for example, follow an enemy down? Absolutely. And he would tell, he would tell other pilots off for this. You know, he told a, a chap called John Mc, George McIlroy about a week before he died, um, Manek died. He would say, if you do that, you'll get killed. You mustn't follow enemy aircraft that you've shot down. You mustn't do it. And and you, you really mustn't do it, you know. And the thing is, it's a phrase my dad used to say. And I used to say, Dad, that's not fair. You're telling me, but you do it. Not do as I say, not as I do. And that was starting to sum up Manek. In this later phase. Before that, he'd followed his own rules. But now, I don't know, overconfident, uh, just tortured soul, uh, not able to think straight. Because it's actually good advice, isn't it? Because the lower you go, the more weapons can actually train themselves on you. You can get shot at from the ground now because you're you're low. It's good advice. Don't do it. And so why did he do it? Anyway, he did do it. And we come now to his death. I mean... uh, uh, it, 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 is it sad? I don't know. It, it, it's, uh, it's a tortured soul for me, and, and, and I do feel sad. On the 26th of July, 1918, uh, Manic takes up a, a young New Zealand pilot called uh, Lieutenant Douglas Inglis. And Inglis couldn't break his duck. <laughs> he, simple as that. You know, and Manic takes him up. And uh, 0530, that money, they see a two-seater LVG um, piloted by... I'm reading this because I think it's in, interesting to remember these people. Because m- the point I want to make is Manak isn't the only person who dies in this engagement. And that's important because, you know, we all say, oh, poor Manak. Listen what happens to the other two. So let's remember the other two. Uh, 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 Joseph Hine is the pilot and the observer is Ludwig Schoff. And... Uh, English had been ordered to stick close to Manic's tail. Manic was going to present him with a kill. So English says this, a quick turn and a dive, and there was Mick. <laughs> That's allowed. <laughs> Shooting up a Hun two-seater. He must have got the observer. As when he pulled up and I came in underneath him, I didn't see the Hun shooting. That's exactly what had happened. I flushed the Hun's petrol tank. Whoosh! You're now burning to death, Gary. And just missed ramming his tail as it came up when the Hun's nose dropped. This is a classic beginner's mistake. But, you know, falling in behind Mick again, we did a couple of circles around the burning wreck and then made for home. Now, the burning wreck, they were down to 600 feet. They were behind the German lines. And there were machine guns on the ground. Guess which country those machine guns belonged to behind the German lines? German. 
Yeah, I, I tell you, <laughs> there's no flies on you. Oh, by the way. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I saw Mick start to kick his rudder and realised we were fairly low. Then I saw a flame coming out the side of his machine. It grew bigger and bigger. Mick was no longer kicking his rudder. His nose dropped slightly and he went into a slow right-hand turn, around, about twice, and hit the ground in a burst of flame. He died. He died. He, he died in a burning aircraft. Um... Um, and when they got back, people in his squadron, you know, were just devastated. All the squadrons he'd served in. So Ira Jones, he was still back at 74 Squadron. He said, it was a difficult business. The thought of mixed charred body not many miles away haunted us and dampened our spirits. There was more drinking than usual on these occasions. The decker, he means a gramophone machine, worked overtime. We tried to sing, but it was painfully obvious that it was forced. I mean, they were just devastated. Men that he'd trained, so 74 squadron, 85 squadron, the men in 40 squadron he'd known. But his influence, so those guys from 4th Australia the squadron, they, they all, you know. But, you know, this is just part of what's happening at this time. I mean, people say, well, it was quite near the end of the war. No, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, it was, it was the 26th of July. He'd have to live a long, long time. You know, unless they sent him home, he'd have been killed sometime anyway. He's breaking too many rules. And was it known, did he shoot himself? Well, that was the thing. He always carried a revolver, which he said he'd shoot himself with. And uh, we don't know, because we don't know where his grave is. People are obsessed with finding where his grave is. And some people have done some great research trying to prove whether this grave or that grave is his grave. You know, which which anonymous. Uh, I'm not bothered, because I'm I'm pretty certain he's definitely dead now. And... uh, and I don't see the point, you know. Uh, for me, it was his career, and, and he's just so interesting. But you know what? Guess what What difference do you think? People, the deaths of people like him, Richtoff and Manic, McCub, they're all dead now, aren't they? In that, that you know, but so by June, July, they're all different. What difference do you think it made to the air war? Well, probably very little. And why is that? Because it's bigger than one individual. It's bigger, that's right. It's not... A small air force now. There's thousands and thousands of them. And what's more, what are these lessons? How complicated are they? You know, always above, seldom at the same level, never underneath. That's not rocket science. Dive down in a formation. Leader shoots first. Come out of the cl- come out of the sun. I forgot to mention that was one of the. If you can't, you know, should have mentioned that earlier, shouldn't I? Jumps. Come out of the sun. Come out of a cloud. Preferably the sun, so they can't look and see you. It's not rocket science, is it? No. And the lessons had been taught. So fundamentally, there are now lots of mini manics and mini Richtofens. They're, they're people who've learned from the masters. And the fact that the masters are dead doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean that much. So what? how many kills, if you'll pardon the expression, or victories perhaps would be a better word, um, actually made an ace? And how many did Manic score? Well, it's five claimed kills. Or, or victories, because earlier they counted almost, if you forced them down, it counted. Uh, if, if they were out of control, it counted. And it, gradually they tightened it up. Uh, five. That sounds quite low. It is quite low. Manic, uh, I'm going to give you three scores. Uh, I think that everybody overclaimed, because you can't tell what's happening in, in, a, in a dogfight. Or, 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 you know, even if you dive down and shoot at someone, you don't, you, you, if, you want, if you watch what's happening to your victim... Someone else will shoot you down. So you don't see what's happening to the people you shot at. So everything is a bit up in the air. I think a likely score would be about 50, you know, 
That's absolutely definitely shot down, in my view. Uh, I don't do the work. Uh, great historians like uh, like Trevor Henshaw do the work on this. Uh, I, 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 he claimed 61, and I think that's fair enough, you know. Uh, but uh, his claim was later raised to uh, a somewhat dubious 73 on the grounds of that he'd shared claims. Now, the shared claims have been counted. You get half for them, and this is all a bit dubious. But there was a reason for it. Can, do you know what the reason is? Was it something to do with... The, there was a campaign to get him a VC about a year or so, I think, after the war. Oh, was that's it something right. to do with that? No, no. no well, that was, a, that was an ongoing... Yeah, I mean, it, he was the finest British patrol leader. Because McCudden was much more an individual killer. He, he was a competent patrol leader, but he was an inspirational and, and you know. So Manic was our greatest. He was a British ripped off, if you, if you like. No, no, no. It was something else. Because another ace was given, a British ace, was the, the Canadian, uh, William Bishop, uh, claimed 73 uh, uh, claims. Uh, sorry, seventy-two. <laughs> seventy-two claims. That's the point. Oh, I'm such an idiot. At times. And the um, and the, the the RAF, the pilots, were not having it. They did not believe Bishop's claims. This is not the topic of this thing, so I don't want to go into it. But at the time, they did not believe it, and there was a campaign to get uh, Manick's, uh, uh score raised to one more than Bishop, and this is arbitrarily raised to seventy-three. I don't believe. Uh, Manning would certainly not have claimed 73 at the time uh, when he was shot, that killed. Uh, he didn't. He claimed 61. Uh, and there you go. Um, so there he is, lauded in the, all the, you know, you get all these history books and it's uh, written, uh, the, the Empire's highest score of days is, uh, is, is Edward Manick. I nearly mixed there. Yeah. Edward Manick. Uh, and I would imagine that he would have laughed. That's what I think he would have done. He would have laughed uh, because he was that kind of man if he wasn't having hysterics. And if I may, Pete, I'd like to leave uh, the last words to Mick Manick himself. Gentlemen, always above, seldom on the same level, never underneath. We, we must live by these watchwords. Thank you very much, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts.
Sounds great, doesn't it?